Imagine a place where your boss owned not just the company, but literally everything around you. The house you lived in, the stores where you shopped. Sometimes even the local church was built by your boss. Every time you went anywhere, you were reminded of who was in charge. We leave our homes in the morning. We kiss our children goodbye. While we slave for the bosses, our children scream and cry. And when we draw our money, our grocery bills to pay. Not a cent to spend for clothing, not a cent to lay away. And on that very evening... Tomorrow is Labor Day. A Gallup poll released last week showed a 71% approval rating for unions in the United States, the highest since 1965. But that popularity varies widely across the country, and the South is generally thought of as largely non-union and even anti-union. But look a bit deeper, and the picture is more complicated. North Carolina's low union density today, for example, belies its rich history of worker organizing since the birth of the American labor movement in the 1800s. NC Labor History Revealed, a brand new podcast from North Carolina's Labor Union Federation, aims to bring that history to light. This Labor Day weekend, they released all four episodes of this limited-run podcast. Today, we bring you episode one, Roots. In this episode, podcaster Ruhama Tereda finds that the recent uptick in worker action isn't new in North Carolina. It's part of a decades-long legacy. The roots of worker resistance trace back to the first union in North Carolina, the Knights of Labor. Demands for a living wage were waged by working people like Ella Mae Wiggins and the Marion Tragedy Heroes, inspiring textile workers across the country. The other three episodes, all available now, explore race, resistance, and revival. We've got a link to NC Labor History Revealed in the show notes. Also, on today's show, two from Labor History and Two. The year was 1875. That was the day anti-black violence erupted into a two-day massacre in Clinton, Mississippi. The year was 1949. That was the day known in New York as the Peekskill Riots. That's all coming up on Labor History Today. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. How it grieves the heart of a mother, you everyone must know. But we can't buy for our children, our wages are too low. It is for our little children that seem to us so dear. But for us nor them dear workers, the bosses do not care. But understand all workers, our union they do fear. Let's stand together, workers, and have a union here. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. Oh, 
On this day in labor history, the year was 1875. That was the day anti-black violence erupted into a two-day massacre in Clinton, Mississippi. As many as 2,500 black Republicans and their families met at Moss Hill, a former plantation destroyed during the Civil War. The day was one of festivities and political speeches ahead of the fall elections. The county Republican Party invited local Democrats to debate. The Democratic state senatorial candidate did address the crowd. The editor of a local Republican newspaper and union officer, Captain H.T. Fisher, followed him. Soon, a group of white Democrats began to heckle Fisher as he spoke. Republican politicians attempted to quell the growing tensions. Almost immediately, however, the heckling whites opened fire on the crowd. Women and children fled in all directions as black Republican forces rushed to defend themselves and their families. By the end of the day, three whites and five blacks were killed. Clinton's mayor fed off rumors of black retaliation. He called upon white paramilitary forces, the white liners, from surrounding areas for assistance. Several hundred answered the call and filled the town's streets. Historian Melissa Janzewski-Jones notes that though heavily armed, the white liners accompanied white locals as they rampaged door to door looking for black Republicans to murder. After two days, as many as 50 black Clintonians were killed by white Democrats looking to end Reconstruction and regain political control of Mississippi. A Senate committee would later conclude, quote, the riots at Clinton were part of a special purpose on the part of the Democrats to break up the meetings of Republicans and inaugurate an era of terror not only in those communities, but throughout the state. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Imagine realizing in a pandemic that your health isn't as important as doing your job. Your labor is essential. Good evening, everyone. Parts of the South are preparing tonight to become the canaries in the coal mine as it moves forward with plans to ease restrictions on many businesses satisfying a yearning to return to normalcy and get back to business on a matter of life and death. Work was very weary, life was sad and dreary just a little while ago. Life and motion roaring from the sweat shop pouring dressmakers amassing straw. During the pandemic, I was fortunate to be a student who was able to study and work virtually. But like many of you, I was bombarded with news clips extolling essential workers, healthcare workers, cashiers, meat and poultry processors. People working these jobs didn't have a remote option. And as cases soared, we clapped and praised them for being brave and performing essential duties conveniently forgetting that they didn't choose to become heroes. They had no option but to work. Many of these workers became fed up. By some estimates, almost a quarter of working people in the U.S. have quit their jobs since the beginning of the pandemic. Others resolved to take collective action to fix their jobs. In 2021, a record number of workers went on strike and withheld their labor until their demands were heard. One explanation for this is that working in the most perilous conditions in modern history during a modern plague has exposed the cracks that have long existed for workers. 
backed against a wall by decades of low wages, a lack of paid leave, and unsafe working conditions made worse by COVID-19, workers have been pushed to leverage their labor and re-examine their relationship with work. This may seem like another unprecedented event, but the tradition of organized worker resistance isn't new in the U.S., and it isn't new in North Carolina, a state that the anti-poverty organization Oxfam ranked as the most hostile to workers. The roots of worker resistance here trace back over a century with the heroic stories of working people who, like workers today, stood up against unjust working conditions. Things like the 40-hour work week, outlawing child labor, overtime, and a minimum wage weren't always features of the workplace. They were causes fought for and won by workers. Through this series, we'll briefly look at important parts of North Carolina's labor history to remember the stories of worker resilience, the heroes who, even in unimaginable circumstances, dared to imagine a better world for workers. The history of worker organizing through unions in North Carolina extends back 140 years ago. In 1884, working men and women in North Carolina founded a local chapter of a national trade union, the Knights of Labor. The idea of trade unionism emerged in the U.S. in the late 19th century as the number of people working in production industries increased. Workers saw that booming industries exploited workers and sought to create a way to resist corporate malpractices. So they joined together to collectively fight for better wages and safer jobs. By joining together to demand better working conditions and threatening to withhold their labor by going on strike if their demands weren't met, workers gained leverage they could use to negotiate a better workplace. The Knights of Labor were especially notable because they were open to working men and women, black and white, which allowed the union to reach more workers and increase their power. In their preamble, the Knights of Labor write, quote, The alarming development and aggressiveness of great capitalists and corporations, unless checked, will inevitably lead to the hopeless degradation of the toiling masses. Therefore, we have formed the Order of the Knights of Labor for the purpose of organizing and directing the power of the industrial masses. The idea of organized unions of workers was such a threat to employer power that the Knights of Labor were sworn to secrecy. Employers had immense power to control the lives of workers in the late 19th century, especially in southern states, where many bosses had once been enslavers just a couple of decades prior. To paint a picture of what workers in many parts of North Carolina were living in, we have to understand the dynamics of labor during this time. Because people traveled looking for work, they didn't necessarily have established roots in the towns they worked in. No extended family nearby, no longtime friends, no community to help in hard times. Employers capitalized on this precarity by setting up textile mill towns or factory villages. Imagine a place where your boss owned not just the company, but literally everything around you. 
the house you lived in, the stores where you shopped. Sometimes even the local church was built by your boss. Every time you went anywhere, you were reminded of who was in charge. Employers control the town and their employees' lives, not only at work, but at home. Often, several members of your family had to work at the textile mill to even qualify for these conditions, causing many parents to send their children to work alongside them. Crossing your boss could get you all run out of town. The Lorray Mill Strike in Gastonia in 1929 would be the first large-scale strike in North Carolina history. At Lorray Mills, the relationship between workers and the company was better when the company was owned by locals. Workers could go home occasionally to check in on their children and even leave their jobs to attend community events. Although the relationship between employers and employees was imbalanced, local ownership afforded workers a more personal relationship with management. But of course, all of these freedoms were granted in the context of a town that was essentially controlled by the owning class. Workers were often unsatisfied with their wages and the working conditions and turned to key unions like the Knights of Labor or the National Union of Textile Workers for support. Things continued this way, more or less, until World War I, when there was an increased demand for textile products during a labor shortage. Because companies needed workers to meet this demand, workers had more leverage than before, and wages increased. After World War I, though, conditions for workers got worse. Tariffs and a more global supply of textile products caused management to cut costs by cutting wages. Soon, textile mill ownership became concentrated in the hands of fewer people. At this point, Gaston County, where Gastonia is located, had the largest number of textile mills concentrated in one county in America. Northern capitalists turned to the South to capitalize on cheaper labor costs compared to the North. A company in Rhode Island bought Lorraine Mills. These ownership changes, along with automation, made conditions worse for workers. Workers literally had clocks inserted in their workstations as a physical reminder to increase productivity. Owners started locking workers in the mills to prevent unauthorized breaks. A horrifying tradition continued in North Carolina through 1991, when 25 workers who were locked in a Hamlet chicken processing plant during a fire perished because they were unable to escape. Workers were forced to work faster over longer hours without the promise of higher wages a tactic called stretch out. By now, the labor market had changed such that workers couldn't even utilize the last resort option of moving to another factory. They had to fight to keep the jobs they had. But the idea of fighting back against these policies was growing. One worker at Lorray Mills was Ella Mae Wiggins. Ella May moved from her hometown in the mountains of Seaverville, Tennessee, to work at various textile mills in her lifetime. She started work young to support her family after her father, James Maples, was killed on the job as a lumberjack. Like many workers, 
Alame moved, looking for work at textile mills, eventually landing in Gastonia, North Carolina. Alame gave birth to nine kids, four of which she lost to infections. As a single mom, she had to choose between tending to her children when they became sick or working. Alame asked her boss to change her shift so she could take care of her kids during the evenings, but her employer refused. She reflected on this loss, saying, I had to quit, and then there wasn't no money for medicine, and they just died. How it grieves the heart of a mother, you everyone must know. But we can't buy for our children, our wages are too low. Ella May went on to live in a predominantly black community outside of town to avoid living inside the oppressive mill village. As a resident of this outsider community, Ella May saw the ways in which the labor struggle was a fight for all workers, black and white. She lived here while caring for her five children and working six days a week. When the owners of Lorraine Mill began decreasing the already unlivable wages to increase profits, Ella May and other workers at Lorraine became even more interested in union organizing. The National Textile Workers Union began organizing workers and recruiting union members at Lorraine Mills for a few months until they were ready to go on strike. But understand the workers our union they do fear let's stand together workers and have a union here known for her singing voice ella may became a leader using songs and delivering a speech in washington dc to advocate on behalf of loray workers the firing of five workers on march 5th 1929 was the final spark that precipitated a strike on April 1st of that same year. When 1,800 workers walked off the job, they asked for increased wages, 40-hour work weeks, and equal wages for men and women. But the company rejected these demands and actively tried to undermine support for the union. Mill owners suggested that they would evict workers from their company-owned homes. They controlled the town that they had the police on their side, and they even recruited the governor to deploy the National Guard against their own workers. Despite these intimidation tactics, Lorraine Mill workers remained steadfast. Ella May was not only an incredible organizer at Lorraine, but she even organized black workers in her community, who also worked in other textile mills. Her songs powered her fellow workers. Although the company's strong-arm tactics forced many workers back to work, hundreds of workers went so far as to live in a tent town established by the textile union to continue their strike despite being evicted from their homes. The struggle continued until September of 1929. Ella May and 22 of her co-workers were headed to a rally on September 14th when she was planning to sing for strikers. On their way to the protest, they were intercepted by an armed mob of a hundred town members, some of whom were newly deputized at the direction of the Loray owners. When confronted by the company operatives, the unarmed group of 22 union members, led by LMA, agreed to return home. 
Nevertheless, the mob ambushed the workers and opened fire. Ella May was fatally shot. Theory circulated that Ella May was targeted because of the threat she posed to the anti-union movement as an organizer who worked with black and white workers and for her inspirational pro-union ballads. Despite being murdered in public, it took over a month for anyone to be indicted for her death. Five people were charged, but all of LMA's killers were acquitted. Just over an hour northwest of Gastonia, in Marion, North Carolina, workers at Marion Manufacturing, a textile company, also turned to union organizing, this time with the United Textile Workers of America, to respond to their company's demand that they work longer without an increase in wages. On October 2nd, 1929, several workers went on strike. In response, the local sheriff and several armed company officials that the sheriff deputized that same day responded with force outside the plant. Firing tear gas into the crowd of striking workers, the deputies opened fire. In total, six picketing workers were killed, but a local court found the sheriff and deputized company officials innocent of murder. Marion Manufacturing blacklisted the strikers and eventually drove them out of the mill village. The frustrations of workers at Larray Mills and Marion Manufacturing were shared by workers in textile mills across the country, where people were being forced to work more for less money. Despite the passage of the 1933 National Industrial Recovery Act, a modest attempt to protect workers who wanted to form a union, textile companies overtly broke the law to intimidate workers who wanted to join unions. The next year, in 1934, 400,000 textile workers in mills up and down the East Coast went on strike. Organized by the United Textile Workers of America, groups of striking workers formed caravans of union organizers called Flying Squadrons to go from factory to factory and encourage workers to join them. As they drove down the coast and stopped at mills to convince workers to join them on their strike, they shut down plant after plant as the strike picked up steam. Textile companies responded by force, including in Kannapolis, North Carolina, where the National Guard was deployed to force strikers back to work. Local departments deputized citizens and unleashed them against striking workers. Plant owners collaborated with local police departments to use force that injured and killed striking workers. When the nationwide strike ended, companies defied government orders to rehire strikers and fired thousands of workers, leaving people without jobs or homes. This undeniable demonstration of worker power and the failure of the National Industrial Recovery Act to ease decades of growing labor unrest prompted the Roosevelt administration to pursue greater protections for workers, resulting in the passage in 1935 of the National Labor Relations Act, which officially declared that it is the policy of the United States to encourage collective bargaining by protecting workers' full freedom of association to form 
and join unions. But trade unionism demands full freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. Trade unionism has helped to give to everyone who toils the position of dignity which is his due. The present position of labor in the United States as an interdependent unit in the life of the nation has not come about by chance. It has been an evolutionary process of a healthy democracy at work. This strike was over, but the idea of organized worker resistance to unchecked corporate power, decades in the making, had taken root in North Carolina. And these roots would grow. Forward, forward, the union challenge ring. Forward, forward, the dressmaker sings. Evermore uniting many thousand fighting march we on victory. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1949. That was the day known in New York as the Peekskill Riots. Internationally renowned African-American singer Paul Robeson was scheduled to give an open-air concert. He was known for his deep, moving voice singing iconic songs like Shenandoah and the Ballad of Joe Hill. Robeson was active in the causes of civil and labor rights. In the Cold War hysteria after World War II, Robeson had been labeled a dangerous communist. The New York concert was originally planned to benefit the Civil Rights Congress. The group had been defending the Trenton Six, a group of six young black men sentenced to die in New Jersey for allegedly killing a white shopkeeper. The case was rife with legal abuses, but protests over the concert led to its cancellation. It was rescheduled and the tickets were distributed to trade unionists in New York City. On the day of the concert, 2,500 union members made a human wall around the field to protect against protesters. Protesters gathered, hurling anti-black and anti-Jewish racial epithets. Pete Seeger opened the concert, followed by Robeson. The real trouble came when the concert ended and people tried to leave. The protesters threw rocks at passing cars, while policemen stood by and watched. 145 people were injured. Other concerts were canceled. Paul Robeson would continue to be harassed by the FBI. He was denied a passport due to his stance against anti-black discrimination in the United States and against colonialism in Africa. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. That's it for this week's edition of the Labor History Today podcast. Really hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. You can also spread the word by liking and following us. The NC Labor History Revealed podcast is based on the North Carolina Labor History Exhibit produced by the North Carolina State AFL-CIO. Podcaster Ruhama Tereda was born in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. When she was five, she moved with her family to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where she calls home. She developed an interest in labor while following the activism of essential workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. After interning with Student Action with Farm Workers in North Carolina AFL-CIO, she graduated with a BA in Public Policy from Duke University in 2022. 
We've got a link to NC Labor History Revealed in the show notes. As always, thanks so much for listening. Let us know what you think, comment, or email us. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time.